This message by Jake Simmons was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Jake serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Zechariah. If you're here this morning and you'd like a copy of the scriptures, uh, you can go ahead and raise your hand now and one of our ushers will bring a copy to you that you can keep and use this morning. It'll be good to have a Bible this morning. Uh, Zechariah, we're going to continue our series in the Minor Prophets, and um, we've reminded you that minor doesn't mean that they're not any less valuable in God's Word, but just smaller. But I would like to begin by saying Zechariah is an exception to this. Zechariah is the longest of the Minor Prophets. You could say the least of the Minor Prophets. It'll take about 30 to 35 minutes to read through, which I would encourage you to do. Um, There's a lot of good truth in that, but um, Zechariah is also one of the most quoted and alluded to books in the New Testament. There are over 60 different quotes or allusions to this book, so it's filled with truth. It helps you connect and make sense of your Bible. So we're going to be dropping into a a couple of different places this morning, so it'd be good to have your Bible. But let's let's turn our attention first and begin by reading Zechariah 1, chapter Chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, and what we're about to read is the very word of God. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded, my servants and prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. This is God's word. There's a tension that we have continued to face as we've gone through the minor prophets. I don't know if you've noticed it, but this tension is between... There's a gap between expectation and reality, isn't there? There are these promises, there are these, this future promise that God puts before us as we read through the minor prophets, but then, as we've read through them, there is reality. There's what we see with our eyes. There is what is happening in our lives. There is what's happening in the lives of Israel. God has made amazing promises, but things at present are not looking good. This is The same for the people of Israel and Zechariah. As Bill reminded us last week, they have returned from exile. And they are rebuilding the temple. There are these promises that have been made to them. There are these things. There are these hopes that they have. Yet, as they rise each day, and as they think about the rebuilding of the temple, they see a foundation and temple that is pathetic. The old men who had seen Solomon's temple, they weep when they see the new one. Solomon's temple was like a palace. The new one is like a shack by comparison. 
Think about the promise of God in relation to the promised land. He promised Abraham the land of Canaan. He brought the people into the land and established the kingdom centered in Jerusalem under a son of David with God's presence dwelling with his people. But now in Zechariah's day, the Jews are scattered all over the world. The ones that are in the land aren't ruled by a Davidic king. Zerubbabel, the governor, is governor. He's not king. Darius is the Persian king. He is in charge. Jerusalem is in shambles. So instead of the people of God gathered in the land, because with the presence of God under the king of God, they are scattered. And they have a governor. They have a pathetic house and a city is in in shambles. They had come home, it's true, but home to what? There's this promise that God has held before them. This, this hope and this longing that they have, that they look at, but when they rise each day and they walk among the city, what they see, scourge, it leaves them asking the question, what is God really doing? So, so how does Zechariah speak into this situation? What does the prophet have to say to God's people? And, and I believe this morning what, he, what Zechariah is going to do is he's going to help them see. He wants them to see past what they see with their eyes and see and trust God by faith. The eye is an amazing part of the body. It's actually a parable about faith. Because of the shape of the lenses in our eyes, whenever we look at something, the image we see is actually turned upside down. And so our brain is trained to take that image as it's processed through the nerves and it flips it. And so what we actually see with our eyes is changed by our brain so that it will look right side up. So what we are seeing, what we are seeing with our eyes is different than what is what our brain is processing. So this means that our brains receive a picture of the world flipped on its head. But the reality, what we see is different. We cannot believe merely what we see. Our perceptions are not our primary source of truth. They were never designed to be. They require the help of another source. And I believe that's, that's really what Zechariah is trying to do. He's trying to say, hey, this is what you see, but you're going to have to trust that what you see, there is more. You're going to have to look to my promises. You're going to have to look to the prophets. You're going to have to look to my ways. And what take those sources of truth that is sure, My promises are sure. Look at those. And then in light of what you see with your eyes, you're going to have to be informed by these truths. So the goal of Zechariah's ministry, he wants to help the people to see. He wants to help them see that even in the midst of hard circumstances, they have every reason to hope. How are you doing right now as you walked in? Do you have reason to hope this morning are you more aware of your failures than you are the promises of God God is calling us to look beyond our circumstances and see what God is doing I think the main point for our message this morning is set your hope fully on the Lord who purposes to do you good set your hope fully on the Lord who purposes to do you good do you believe that about God That his purpose is to do you good. That is his purpose for your life. The people of Israel were having a hard time believing this. And I'm sure we, like them, can have a hard time 
believing this, but God has given us a source of truth where we can take all that we see with our eyes and we can take it to here and it'll help us understand. It'll help us remind us of what is true and what we can hold on to and what God is doing. So first point, first things first. Let's look at Zechariah 1, 1 through 6. While you're looking at that, I want to introduce you to Joseph, the animal Barboza. The animal was a notorious hitman for the mafia in the 60s. He was employed by the patriarch of crime family. He became quite famous around Boston for his reputation and began to be under severe pressure from the police for other crime families and even his own family. His life was at stake, and so Barboza decided to testify about when he knew in return for the protection from the FBI. Barboza became the first man to enter the Witness Protection Program. He was given the name Joe Bentley. He moved to California where the FBI enrolled him in cooking school. But in 1971, after only two years, he ended up on trial for first-degree murder. Like this first man in the Witness Protection Program, many of the participants returned to a life of crime. Almost 20% of participants are convicted of serious crimes while in the system. Witness Protection Program gives people new identities. They relocate them to new cities. They give them new jobs. In some ways, they give them new lives. But Witness Protection Programs can't change everything about a person. But it can't change the heart. Likewise, the people of Israel have returned to the land, but that does not mean that they have returned to the Lord. First things first, God doesn't just want them to return to building a temple. He wants them to return to himself. Richard Phillips says this, While Haggai focused the people on building the temple for the Lord, God came to Zechariah and focused him on rebuilding the people and their faith. So first things first, where does Zechariah begin? Well, you may have noticed Zechariah begins these opening verses with very strong words. He begins by saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Well, hello, Zechariah. How are you doing today? Nice to hear from you. Doesn't really start with a greeting, does he? He just kind of gets in there after it. And he gets straight to the point. And and it's meant to be a a bit jarring, but it's also meant to inform us that what Zechariah is about to talk about is of first importance. It's serious. He's ready to get down to business. Here's what you need to know. Here is what you need to see. Here is what you need to remember. Zechariah, he goes right to their hearts. He goes right in and he wants to dig down. He wants to just go in there and he wants to see and tell them, where is your hope? What are you looking to? What, where is your faith? What are you longing for? And he begins by saying that he was angry with their fathers. Why? Because they did not return to him. And so the Lord of hosts declares to them, you need to return to me. And I will return to you. You see, there is this tension where the people of Israel think, oh, we're, we're back in our land, so we're, we're going we're to be okay with God. There was this presumption that, okay, God has brought us back, and now everything's okay. So if we just kind of go through the motions, if we just build the temple, if we just do what we're supposed to, then everything's going to be fine. But, but God is saying, no, no, no. Remember your father's? Remember the warnings that I gave them? Remember the calls that I gave them time and time again to repent, to not worship idols? 
to worship the living God, that I would bring judgment, that I would bring discipline. Don't be like them. Return to me. And he promises this, that I will return to you. Now that can feel like that God is saying, hey, you need to do this before I'll do this. But what what you have to remember is that God has already brought them back. God has already rescued them and brought them out back to the place where they have lived, back to the people of Israel, back to the nation. And so now he is saying, I have not only brought you back here and set you free from captivity, but now I'm, I'm, I'm calling you to myself. I'm calling you that you would come to me. This invitation to come, this, this call to repent, this call to turn from your ways and come to me. And there's a promise with it. God said that I will be there. I will return to you. I will be faithful to do that. Listen to these words in Zechariah 7. Zechariah 7, 4 through 6. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? That's what what Zechariah is getting at. He is addressing, hey, why are you doing what you're doing? Are you just building the temple? Are you just building this? Are you just here because that's because you're a good Jew? Because you have to be here? Because this is part of what the family does? Or are you here because you love me? Are you here because not just I get all this stuff, but I get God? Not just that, that there's going to be all these wonderful things that God is going to provide for me, but I am going to get the God of the universe. As I return to him, he promises that he will return to me. J.C. Ryle nails it on the head as to why this is so important for Zechariah to begin with. He says, Nothing so hardens the heart of men as a barren familiarity with sacred things. So, so when they look at the temple, and when they look at the foundation and what they're building, and they begin to, to weep, and they begin to question, and they begin to groan, and they begin to maybe just, just go and do something else and, and tend to their houses, what's going on is there is a hardening going on. There's a familiarity going on. There's there's something going on in their lives to where Zechariah is wanting to start with and saying stop and return to the Lord. Stop and return to me. First things first, your heart has to be right. You can't just go through the motions. You can't just come on Sunday morning and just show up and just kind of go through the motions. You can't just sing songs. You can't just do the right thing without your heart being in it. God is desirous for our heart. He wants our affections. He wants us to treasure Him. He wants us to want Him more than anything. The reason that we come on Sunday morning is so that we can have Him, so that we can hear from Him, so we can be reminded of what He has done. Zechariah continues in Zechariah 7, verses 11. He says, But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder. And stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. So therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, they would not hear. So they called, and I would not hear. 
Here once again, Zechariah's call in chapter 1. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me. Do not be like your fathers. Do not be like those who dismiss and deny and don't listen to God's invitation. So, but, so before anything, we have to hear God's voice. You have to hear God's voice, his gracious invitation to return to me. Don't return to your Bible reading to earn God's favor. Don't return to your prayer list. Don't return just to attending Sunday morning. Don't return just to doing the right thing. No, return to him. By faith, saying, Lord, there's nothing else that I bring, but I come to you. Trusting, I've come to you because you say you will come to me. And I have seen your goodness, and I've seen what you've done. And I'm going to draw near to you. I'm not going to be like those who have gone before, who harden their hearts. I'm softening my heart. And I see my ways, and I see that I need to change. I see that I've exchanged you for these other things. And Lord, I want you. That is what we pray for this morning. That's where we have to begin. Because if we start anywhere else, where, where does that lead? We are here this morning because we want more of God. One more of who he is. One to hear what he has to say. If we haven't been living that way, then the good news this morning is that it's God's kindness that leads us to repent. It's God's kindness. In this moment, if you see that my heart has been hardened, that my heart has been desiring other things besides God, then this morning, guess what the Lord has to say to you? Return to me, and I will return to you. Martin Luther said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. All of life is us turning away from our sin and turning back to God, to Jesus, saying forgive us. So this morning is no exception. Is there sin in your life that you need to confess and turn from? It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's him calling you this morning. Asking the hard questions. See if there's anything going on. If you're just going through the motions, God is inviting you back to him. And God has given us every assurance that he will forgive us our sins when we confess. Which leads to our second point. Dropping down to chapter 3. God will overcome your sin. After these opening verses in Zechariah, Zechariah begins to describe eight visions that he has all in one night. These visions are unlike anything in the Minor Prophets. These visions involve real people and events. They're similar visions to the book of Daniel and Ezekiel. The type of writing is called apocalyptic. It's meaning that it is the disclosure or revelation of unseen heavenly or future realities. And for many of us, including me, these, these visions and this writing can be a bit difficult, a bit challenging to understand. But to the original audience and to Zechariah, there, there was understanding that was brought about. And there's truth about God that is being conveyed in these visions. As Charles Spurgeon said, these function as illustrations or windows that let light in. To illuminate in memorable ways the encouraging truths that Zechariah and ultimately the Lord is wanting to share with his people. So do you see the Bible that way? That when you open God's word, God is wanting to show you things about him? That's what he's doing here. He's, he's wanting to show us. He's wanting to remind us. He's wanting to say, hey, I have things to show you. He had things to show Zechariah, so now he's going to show us. So let's look at this vision. Begin, chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. 
and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. In this vision, Zechariah wastes no time, but he brings us right into the action. Zechariah enters into the throne room of God, which has become a courtroom. And there is a presiding going on, and, and, and upon entering, he sees someone that he knows. He, he, he recognizes him. It's Joshua. It's the high priest. It's the one that represents the people of Israel and, and, and would administer sacrifices and would go in and, and say that here is the sin of the people and make atonement, would, would reconcile a holy God between a sinful people. He did that, and yet the high priest of the people who did this is on trial. That's what he sees. And yet he's not alone. He also sees that Satan is there, the great accuser, the one who is in some ways the plaintiff. He is there to make known what is plain to see, that Joshua is filthy, that he shouldn't be there. And then there's also the angel of the Lord who speaks as for the Lord. Joshua, the great high priest, he is filthy. That word filthy, what what that literally means is that he is covered in human excrement. He's covered in waste. He's covered in something that was ceremonially unclean. And part of this is not only the sin of the people, it's also because that they are coming out of exile. They have dwelled in a land that was not of God. They dwelled in a land that the temple was not present. And so now as Joshua stands guilty before the Lord, the question is, what is going to happen? And if it was up to Satan, Satan would love to accuse. He sees this as a wonderful opportunity. He sees this as an opportunity to call out everything that is wrong with Joshua and what is wrong with the people of Israel. Satan comes and all he wants to do is bring accusation. These are easy pickings for him. All he has to do is say, look at this man. Look Look at what he's wearing. Look at what he's done. Look at where he's been. Look at the people that he represents. He would probably be, I could imagine him even saying to Joshua, Joshua, do you have anything to say for yourself? Can you defend yourself in any way? Do you want to speak up for your people? You're the one that's supposed to represent the people here. What do you have to say for yourself? What do you have to say for your people? And yet Joshua is like Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, he sees the holiness of God. And and what does Isaiah do? But he closes his mouth. He doesn't speak a word. Why? Well, Two things, that he realizes that he's an unclean man and he's among an unclean people. And the best thing to do when you stand before a holy God and you recognize that is be quiet. When you walked in this morning, whose voice were you listening to? Satan loves to discourage the people of God. You came in this morning, even as Donna shared this morning, are you, do you feel shameful? 
just more aware of your sin. This week, did you fall in to that characteristic flesh, that sin that just you can't fight, the one that you can't get victory over? You came in this morning just hearing, oh, these people are going to know who you are. Oh, who are you to come into this place and worship this God, knowing what you have done? You should feel ashamed. You should feel dirty. Oh, who are you, you hypocrite? You're clean on the outside, but inside they know what's going on in your heart. Just Satan's voice. Just He loves to attack and accuse. And... But then Donna comes up and says, hey, listen, here's what the Lord has to say this morning. Here's what the Lord has to say. Salvation is a gift. And, and guess what? It's confirmed what she shared, I believe, is from the Lord this morning. I believe there's those here this morning who are feeling guilty. You feel ashamed. You feel dirty. You feel like, who am I that God could possibly love me? Well, guess what? When Satan is, accu- is accusing the priest that represents God, the people to God, he says, the Lord spoke up and said, I rebuke you, Satan. Be quiet. That's enough. It's my turn to speak. It's my turn to act. It's my turn to do what I can do. And instead of condemning Joshua, the high priest, what he begins to do, he begins to take off his garments. He begins to remove the sin. He begins to remove the shame. And not only does he remove it, but then he says, hey, fetch some clean clothes. Dress this man. Cover this man's shame. Cleanse this man. Joshua, he's just standing there, receiving this. This is what the Bible calls the great exchange. This is, this is what we see Jesus does on the cross for sinners. How is a holy God able to, to be in the presence of a man that is defiled and in human excrement? Well, there was one day he was looking ahead. And he knew that one day that he was going to send someone. He was going to send another priest, a Messiah, one that was going to come. And he was going to do an exchange. He was going to live perfectly and righteously and obey God perfectly. And then on the cross... This exchange happens. He says that I am going to take on this garment of filth, this human excrement. I'm going to take it on me, and I'm going to bear the judgment for what it deserves, the wrath of God. And not only that, I'm going to transfer my cleanness. I'm going to transfer my righteousness, and I'm going to give it freely. I'm just going to clothe you with it. It's a gift to be received by faith. So when you return to the Lord and he says that I will return to you, when you come to God repenting and trusting and setting your hope on him, what you get is not a finger pointing, condemning God, but what you have is here is fresh clothes. Here are clean clothes. Here are the clothes of my son. Here is the gift. These aren't just any clothes. This isn't just any righteousness that I'm giving you, but it's my own. I will not deny myself. I will not turn back the work that I have done because I am perfect I love my work. I love you so much that I did this for you. Come and receive by faith what God has done. And you know what's amazing? The best proof that God's love will never stop is that it never began. Think about that. Ephesians tells us that God chose us before the foundation of the world, that he set his love on his people before the world began, before you were created, before you formed, before the very first sin that you committed, God had set his love on you. You, wanna, you, 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 you doubt God's love for you? Well, guess what? It's always been. 
He has set his love on you. That's how much he loves you. In 1709, a house in England caught fire and all the children were removed safely, or at least they thought, until they realized that the six-year-old boy was missing. His name was John. In the midst of all the chaos, a nearby farmer saw him in the house and other neighbors came together and they each tried to get on their shoulders and when they were able, they grabbed him and they saved his life. Right as the roof came crashing down and this boy would have been killed. John Wesley, later in life, had this scene drawn and kept until he died. And under it, he had this verse from our text this morning. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? God has plucked him out of the fire of his wrath, of his judgment. God did that. He rescued him. This is what Thomas McComsky says. If he, God, had wished to let them perish for their sin, the Lord would have left them in Babylon. But by snatching them from the flames of exile, he revealed that his grace was greater than their guilt. Do you believe that? That where your sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more. The people's greatest threat is not the external threat. The, great, the greatest threat for them is not all these surrounding nations coming and getting them, attacking them, discouraging them. It's not that their temple's small. It's not that their foundation's not that impressive. It's not that they don't have a ruling king right now. The greatest threat this people has is their sin against the holy God. And what God is saying to them is that that's been dealt with. So why are you discouraged? Trust in me. I have good for you. Zechariah is saying, look what God has done. Look what God is doing. This is what you deserve. This is what you get. The great exchange. God has done this. We have every reason to hope this morning. This is what Hebrews says. Every priest. So Jesus, he is our great high priest. He is the one who takes on the filth and he, in, and he stands between us and God. And he says, every priest stands daily at his service. So Joshua would have to spend, stand daily offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Brothers and sisters, we have assurance this morning. Assurance of faith. We're not covered in excrement in our sin. We're covered in the blood of Jesus. Jesus has shed his blood for us. He has made a new and living way. He said that come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and return to me and I will give you rest. Be tired. Be weary. God promises he'll give you rest. Because he'll give you his best. And what he gave was his own son who stands, who sat down and said, it is finished. So when you hear Satan coming, bringing an accusation, you say in the name of Jesus, hush. My Savior speaks a better word. My Savior speaks a more final word. My Savior speaks for me. I am his. Zechariah then shifts from focusing on the priest to Zerubbabel in the construction of the temple. Let's look at chapter 4. God will overcome your weakness. Achilles was a vicious warrior with a complicated history. 
In Homer's Iliad, we see him rise to the top as the preeminent player at the end of the Trojan War. His full backstory is melodramatic. No one was like him. Achilles was simultaneously drunk in rage, but also meticulous in his skill. But most of us probably only know him because of his heel. Achilles doesn't die in Homer's story, but Greek legend says that he later suffered a mortal wound to the back of his foot. The Achilles heel, as it's called today, has become one of the most popular idioms in Western culture. It refers to a person's point of weakness leading to their downfall. And in this, in this next vision that Zechariah goes into, he turns his attention from the high priest to Zerubbabel. And he, what he wants us to consider is this governor un, un, under another ruler's king. He wants us to consider weakness. So look at verses 6 through 10 with me. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by my might, nor by my power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the land in the hand of Zerubbabel. So when we embrace weakness, it means that we've looked at ourselves long enough to know that we can't make it without looking to another. And, and, and so what, what Zechariah is wanting to convey here, what he's wanting to encourage Zerubbabel with is that when he thinks about leading these people, what, what, what he thinks about is, how am I going to do this? How is this possible? How can I construct this temple with this people? How can I be a faithful governor when all that is going on around me? This is what Zechariah is wanting to hammer away with Zerubbabel. Like any of us, weakness can hinder us from wanting to walk in the will of God. Yet, Zechariah wants to make clear that God is committed to rebuilding his temple. Look at verse 9. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall complete it. So this has happened. It will be finished. So this is not to highlight Zerubbabel's strength and leadership, but to highlight God's faithfulness to his people. God appointed Zerubbabel to this task, and he will give him the strength to finish it. But then there's also this other comment that he makes, and he says that we should not despise the day of small things. And, and there's this temptation when we look around and we consider that just everything's just not going our way and everything is just unimpressive to grow discouraged. And when we grow discouraged, there can be a temptation to want to stop. And what God wants to say to us this morning, what he was wanting to say to Zerubbabel is to keep going. Don't stop. Keep building. Keep constructing. Keep working. Don't despise the day of small things. Don't let the older generation's cries keep you from what I have called you to, to what I will help you finish. We can do this in our, our own lives, can't we? We can despise seemingly small things, but I think the Lord this morning wants to encourage us. Don't dismal the small things of prayer by means of which God changes people's hearts. Don't despise the small things of working in the seemingly insignificant place like Our infant care suite, by which you reflect Christ with love and compassion. Don't despise the small things like daily Bible reading, 
by which your heart is transformed by the Spirit. Don't despise small things like daily loving, leading, and learning your wife. Through them, you begin to more clearly reflect Christ's love to the church. Don't despise the small things like honoring your parents. By them, you demonstrate that there is a God who is bigger than you. Don't despise the small things like working hard at your job or school every day. In these things, you show that there is something more profound. Don't despise the small things of even corporate worship, the singing of songs, the preaching of the word, through which there is an announcement of the kingdom and conquest of our Lord. Don't despise the day of small things. Look and consider what God is doing. Look and consider what God has done. When we begin to embrace our weakness, what Paul says is that he actually boasted in his weakness. So that the power of Christ may may be upon him, so that the grace of God may empower him and strengthen him. So God is calling Zerubbabel. He is calling them to him to lead the people, to build the temple. He's calling us this morning to not despise the small things, but see, yeah, we're weak. When you look around, when you look in the mirror, when I look in the mirror, it's just like I'm not that impressive. My day-to-day is not that fun to look and watch. But there is one who has called me. There is one who has empowered me. There is one who has given me life to live. And I want to walk in that. And then he, what he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. So there's one day when we will look back and, and if we follow faithfully after Christ, trust in him, we will not regret it. Because he will complete it. These two figures that we've been considering, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel, these two figures have a deeper significance still. They serve as pointers to a greater, more full more glorious reality than any generation could have perceived. Joshua points to another priest who was to come, to Jesus, our great high priest over the house of God, the one who opens for us a new and living way. Zerubbabel points to a greater David, David's greater son, the son of David. Revelation 1.5 says, The ruler of the kings on earth who loves us and has freed us by his blood. Zechariah 13.1 writes this, So on that day, There shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. There is a fountain to be opened. All will be welcome to come. And as William Cooper reminded us, this is a fountain that is filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That all who come, plunge beneath, they wash all their guilty stains. Jesus said that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And he will be satisfied. Living water will come out of him and he will have new life. There's this fountain that we can come to this morning and receive refreshment and receive forgiveness. And we can see that there is so much more that God is doing. And so we can set our hope that God has purpose to do us good. That God is at work in our midst. That God is building and constructing a temple, this temple, this church. And that we can have confidence in his work in and through us. So now I'm going to pray and we're going to return to singing. And as Zach mentioned, we're going to have a time of second Sunday ministry. And, and our team will be here. And, and the invitation this morning is simply to come. To come and receive prayer. If you're, if you're feeling heavy laden, if you feel guilty, ashamed, come and receive forgiveness. If you're discouraged, come and let this team pray for you. And let the ministry of the Holy Spirit comfort you. So let's pray now. So, Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can come before you in Jesus' name. I thank you that you are a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
that you will never turn us away when we come to you by faith, trusting in Christ. I pray that this morning that we would hear a better word, the word of Christ, the word of the gospel, the word of hope, that we will trust you, that we will come to you, that we will receive, that as we return to you, we will cling and experience the promise that you will return and be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message given by Jake Simmons during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.